Well, good morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, over in the New Testament, toward the end of the Bible, is where we're going to be spending the next four weeks in a sermon series that I'm calling Reclaiming Salvation. And the idea here is that we need that strong reminder from God's Word of what is the nature of our salvation. Um, what is it that God has done, and, and how is He working this salvation in us today as we go through different trials of various kinds? Now, as we get started today, I want to share a couple of things that I'm excited about in the life of the church. Uh, the pastor that I worked for when I was in Lake Charles for two years, his name is Steve James, and Steve could be found many times saying this little maxim from uh, John Maxwell, everything rises or falls on leadership. And I couldn't agree more. Um, that idea that everything rises or falls on leadership is an important idea, mainly because we know as Christians that everything in our lives rises or falls on whether Jesus Christ is Lord of our life or not. And so that truth is true um, when we look ultimately at Jesus Christ. And so therefore, how Jesus Christ leads his church is through gifted leaders leaders that have been gifted by his Holy Spirit in order to lead. And so one of the things I'm excited about in the life of our church is during this time where we have had to say goodbye to some staff of also restructuring and then rebuilding a staff kind of outlay for First Baptist New Orleans so that we continue to faithfully make disciples of all nations in New Orleans and to the ends of the earth. And so I'm excited to share with you, and listen, I wanna go ahead and encourage you, if you're not planning to be at our business meeting next Sunday, August 14th, after our Bible study hour at 11 o'clock. So it'll be at 12 o'clock in the fellowship hall, complete with lunch. You need to go ahead and add that to your calendar because it's there and then that I'm gonna be able to go into great detail about some of the staffing changes that are on the horizon. And I wanna announce two of those folks to you today. One is um, we have a new, uh, uh, let's get my titles right. I didn't write it down. Director of Ministry to Women, and that is Stephanie Lyon. That's sitting right here. Stephanie, if you'll lift your hand right there. Uh, we are so grateful for her. And she'll be working with our Women's Ministry Committee um, in order to really help give leadership to the women's ministry here at First Baptist New Orleans that has always been so important in the life of this church and will continue to be so. And then in addition to that, I'm excited to announce that we're gonna have an, an executive director for discipleship because we have been called by Jesus to make disciples of all nations. And so we need excellent leadership for that and someone to give concert to all of our age-graded efforts of making disciples. And so I'm excited to announce to you today that our very own Gary Myers is going to be stepping into that role here on staff. Gary, if you'll lift your hand right here. Gary has been a faithful deacon here at First Baptist New Orleans, a longtime member, and one who has been committed to making disciples of all nations, primarily laboring with his wife and making disciples among international students right here in New Orleans as the nations come to us. And so if you want to learn more about those, those staff positions, what all is entailed and other changes, put it on your calendar. Be here next Sunday to join us for that family meeting. We call it a business meeting, but really is a family meeting to talk about what God is doing and to make decisions together as a congregation. So those are a few things that I'm excited about in the life of the church because it means that hopefully we're gonna be more and more effective at making disciples of all nations. But as we do that work, and we bring this gospel into the city and among the nations, and we tell people that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we encourage them, so turn from your sin and trust and follow Jesus and give your life to him. What are we communicating they are being saved into? Because there's a lot of messages 
circulating even in our own culture and around the world today about what salvation is. Some say that the message of salvation is a message into a freedom from disease, a freedom from financial difficulty, a freedom from relational strain, that when you trust Jesus and if you really have faith in him, then all of those sort of things of financial need and disease, cancers, all of the health things that we face, God delivers you from those. That's what salvation is. But is that what we see fleshed out in the New Testament? Some communicate that it's a, it's a freedom from the ability for anything to limit you in this life. That it's the ability now for you to look at any obstacle that's in front of you and to speak into existence a way forward. To be able to say to any mountain, be moved in your life. So that basically the idea becomes if anything exists that you want, then in the name of Jesus, you can have it. But we all know that we're sinners saved by grace and that sometimes our desires are sinful. And even though we might baptize that desire in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it does not change that desire from being one that's of the flesh. And so therefore, we can chase after these things that really are corrupting us and, and damaging us and actually pulling us further away from the Lord and erode our faith. And so we see these two different false gospels of what salvation is, that this is what it means to experience salvation. So where do we turn? Do we turn to a popular preacher? Do we need to find somebody that we can watch, you know, to supplement, you know, the young guy at First Baptist in order to really find what salvation is? The answer is no. We don't need to turn to outside sources because often that's where we go wrong. Instead, what you and I all need is to return to the word of God because his word has always made clear exactly the nature of his salvation. And Paul and Peter and John and the different writers of the New Testament, Luke, they were all communicating to the early believers. They were going through things that were very, that are very similar to what you and I go through today. They were trying to give the church what it needed in order to persevere through trials and difficulties and tests of their faith. And so Peter writes to believers who are in different regions, communicating to them what they are going to need to understand as they go through this difficulty, this trial that they are experiencing right now. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. The reason we stand is because we wanna honor God. It's God who speaks to us from his word. These aren't Chad's ideas to you today. This is God speaking to you as his people. And so hear God speak from his word. Beginning in verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. Father, this morning I pray that through the preaching and teaching of your word that you would be glorified because our eyes are fixed on you that we would be reminded today that all of this, our existence as your people is because of your great mercy. We sing of it, 
would you now drive it deep into our hearts that our existence is by your mercy so that we rightly praise you and worship you as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now you may wonder, why did you stop right there in verse three? You didn't keep going with the, and finish the sentence. If you look at verses three all the way down through 12, you're gonna see a lot of periods in there, but really in the biblical text, which was written in the language of, of Koine Greek, there's one long sentence that unfolds all the way from verse three, all the way down to verse 12. And so really we can kind of start and stop where we need to, to make it through this passage. And that's what we're gonna be looking at over these next four weeks is this big idea because what Peter is doing is he's really anchoring their faith. And then the rest of first Peter unfolds with how to live in light of this great salvation that God has done for you. Now here's how you're to live your lives. And so we're gonna go through this passage, but the main idea, the main takeaway that I want you to walk away with today is this. Salvation exists because of his great mercy. We need to recover that truth. That salvation exists because of his great mercy. And everything about these first three verses puts that on display. And so I just want us to walk through this to see how his mercy is at work. So let's go back up to verse one and just start to walk our way slowly through this passage to see how his mercy works toward us in Christ Jesus. Well, beginning in verse one, we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're from a Catholic background, you hear the name Peter and you think the first pope. This is where it all began. That when Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, he's speaking about Peter Whose, whose name meant rock. And so this is the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. Peter is everything. He's regarded as the first pope. He, he is a preeminent leader in the church, all of these things. But we need to remember what the gospels say about Peter. We need to remember that Peter, as an apostle, is a full demonstration of the mercy of God. I mean, do you have a friend who constantly is saying things that just cause you to shake your head? that you look at and you say, man, that guy has a loose cannon of a mouth. Always putting his foot in his mouth, always saying things, a little on the arrogant side, a little cocky, thinks he can do everything. That's Peter. Peter who thinks, Jesus, if every one of the disciples leave you, I never will. And who do we see denying Jesus three times the night of his conviction, and then subsequent crucifixion. Peter. Peter, who you would think would quickly return to Christ, but instead quickly actually goes to the nets, goes back to fishing after the burial of, res the burial of Jesus Christ, and not realizing that Jesus has yet been resurrected, he's back at the boats doing the only thing that he knew, the life that he came from, that rough life of a fisherman. And it's there that we see Peter reinstated by the mercy of God. You see, the mercy of God was at work in Peter's life, reinstating him after one of the greatest failures of faithfulness recorded in the Bible, where, where you see Peter denying Jesus, even calling down curses on himself that I don't know the man. And now Peter 
writing a letter that here we are 2,000 years later, just let that sink in, 2,000 years later, here we are gathered at First Baptist New Orleans reading the words of a man who had blown it royally for all to see, captured in the Bible, and who now has this firm identity that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm one who sent. Brothers and sisters, Peter's life was a full demonstration of the mercy of God, and he knew it. He knew it. He was intimately aware of just how much mercy he had received, and it had changed everything about him, everything about him. And in the same way, you and I are to have lives lived that show that we are convinced that our lives are only by his mercy. You see, that was part of Peter's apologetic, was his life. He was essentially saying to people, if you, if you knew me, if you knew what a, like a, a dummy I can be with my words, if you knew how prideful I can be in my heart, if you knew just how much I'd blown it, how unfaithful I'd been to Jesus, then you would know just how great the mercy of God is. And so God's mercy is on display in this life saved by grace, one who's received mercy. And now Peter in this letter is calling you and me to live lives that demonstrate that we have received mercy like him. Second, because of his great mercy, we read these words, to those chosen. Now there's three ideas that then get fleshed out of what does that mean? We get to a phrase like this and maybe you're a little bit more theologically read than maybe others, you know, maybe in your, in your Bible study group and stuff like that. And so you see the word chosen and your mind immediately goes to, okay, so we're talking about predestination and we're talking about Calvinism or Arminianism. And we, and we start coming up with all these categories. Can you just capture all that for a moment and just set it aside so that in this moment, you realize Calvin won't be born for another 1,500 years. So he's not at play here. Peter's not trying to engage a church in a dispute. He is writing to believers who right now are going through great difficulty of their faith. It's not the steam hasn't been turned up, the heat hasn't been turned up enough yet that people are perishing. He doesn't speak of that here, but that's right on the horizon. Right now, it's just verbal slander. Anybody testify to that? Verbal slander because of their faith. That because they follow Jesus, they're starting to, to take a lick. Things are starting to get blamed on them. They're thought little of. They're being, over, they're being overlooked in promotions. They're, they're starting to suffer business because of this commitment to Jesus Christ and his ways. And they're at this tempting point of, you know what? Maybe we just need to blend in a little better. Maybe we just need to fit into our culture a little better. And so he's writing to them and he's reminding them that you've been chosen, you've been set apart. And that language, everything that Peter picks up on is throwing us back into the Old Testament and reminding us that there was this set apart people of God called Israel that existed in the Old Testament and they were unique. Yes, they were among other cultures, but they stood out. They had God as their God and they were called under his law to live a certain way. Their lives were going to be very distinct from the lives of those around them. And then we're gonna see further explanation or description of what these people are. They're exiles and that ushers us into a whole nother understanding of what Peter is saying about Christians today. 
And before we run too far to what that means, we need to just take it one phrase at a time. And so to those chosen, we see this, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Look at verse two. The second idea is this, chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, continuing in verse two. And then thirdly, chosen, that's still our our main idea that's that's being explained here in verse two, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice what you just saw, Father, Spirit, and Jesus Christ, the Son. Peter is at the very front of this, communicating that God, the being who is God, eternally three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was at work in your salvation. God acting. So he's correcting maybe some ideas that began to creep in and even today are popular among us when we talk about it. We, sometimes the way we talk about salvation is that Jesus saved us from an angry father. Like he's some sort of a rescuing sibling that steps in and shelters us from an abusive dad. That's not what salvation is. Peter is clearly explaining, no, the father in love is acting. The spirit in love is acting. The son in love is acting all for this idea that you have been chosen. Now, this is an important corrective for us in our understanding today because often we speak in individualistic terms. We read this and we say, I'm chosen. I'm part of the people of God. And we speak in these individualistic terms, but here in 1 Peter in verse one, it's to those chosen, plural. He's speaking to the church. And so we have to be mindful that in our current context, we often make very individualistic the things that are plural in the scriptures. The things that would be, you know, kind of described as y'all, we say me. And that causes abuse. And that causes tension. And that causes us to lose something that's very important. But let's look at these three ideas of what it means to be chosen. Chosen according, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Scholar Karen Jobes writes this. With this phrase, Peter reminds his readers that the God who took the initiative in their lives has drawn them into an intimate, loving, redemptive relationship with him but also one in which God claims supreme authority over their lives. Such a reminder is apt at times when Christians are troubled by the circumstances in which they find themselves, confused about how to live and tempted to doubt God's goodness or faithfulness. You see, the reason that I felt led to this passage and to this time is because I believe that in this room right now, there are brothers and sisters, men and women walking with the Lord right now who are troubled by the circumstances in which they find themselves, confused about how to live and tempted to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness. Now, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands of, does that describe you? But I think that more than one hand would go up in this room this morning, especially when it comes to confusion about how I should live now. There's good news. You see, Peter doesn't just stop there with, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, identifying this father relationship that God now has with us. He goes on to say that you've been chosen according to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Again, Karen Jobes writes, the electing purpose of God is made real by the faith of believers, but that, but that faith is itself a completely gracious act of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who first stirs in the heart of a reaching 
stirs in the heart a reaching toward God. It quickens one's understanding of the gospel. It convicts of sin. It reassures of pardon and transforms the character by his fruit of virtues. What does this mean? This means that every time that I've ever been with a group that's gone out to evangelism, what's, what, what is it that we do before we go out? Well, what is it, you know, Philip at the port ministry, when you're going to be going onto a ship and going in there to make disciples of all nations and to share the gospel, what do you do? We pray and we admit, God, we can't save these people, but you can. And God, we ask that you would precede us, you would go before us by the work of your Holy Spirit to prepare their hearts to hear and believe the gospel. What are we praying? We are praying that through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, God, you would call out those that you are calling to yourself through the power of the gospel. And what is that gospel? Well, that's what Peter makes clear, that we have been called to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood doesn't get sprinkled unless something dies. And so what he is putting on display right here is that Jesus Christ died for you and his blood is sprinkling you clean. And you're saying, well, what is that imagery? Well, that's pointing again back to the Old Testament. There would be the day of atonement where this sacrificial animal would be sacrificed, the blood of a lamb would be slain, and then it would be sprinkled on the people, indicating that they had been atoned, their sins had been covered over, that another had perished for their sin, and now the blood of that animal was being applied to them so that that death was done. The writer of Hebrews makes clear that the blood of animals could never take away our sins. The blood of animal was always pointing to one who would come that John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That ultimately, all of that was pointing to Jesus, and that is what Peter is making clear. So really, when we come to these first two verses and we read these words that might cause us to be confused or maybe even to get a little combative with each other, Peter is reminding them, God loves you. God loves you so much that he has brought you in to be your father. His spirit is with you sanctifying you, bringing about salvation day after day after day. And you, you are the ones that Jesus died for, shed his blood on the cross for. And his blood, just like the blood of animals used to be sprinkled, so his blood has been sprinkled on you to take away a guilty conscience, as the writer Hebrews says. So he's reminding them, God is for you. God loves you. Your salvation is because of this God who has acted on your behalf. He's anchoring them back to this reminder that they need. And brothers and sisters, we need that reminder. We need the reminder of just how central these ideas were. This wasn't just him going through the, the writing like, you know, dear church, you know, and then going through just cursory greetings and just being sure that he got a good Trinitarian formula in there so that nobody would laugh at him when, he, you know, when his letter was read. No, he is anchoring the church to this reality about who God is. All of this, all of this theology, all of this doctrine bound up in just these two verses of what it means to be chosen. So let me ask you this. When you think about the reality that you've been chosen, does it cause you to thank your father? When you think about the reality that you're called chosen here with the rest of the saints, does it cause you to thank God for the work of his spirit in your life? Does it cause you to thank Jesus Christ for shedding his blood so that you could be sprinkled clean of your sin? If that's not the result 
then I think you're misunderstanding what it means to be chosen. Because these things were supposed to result in praise, which is exactly where the passage goes in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's doxology. He's worshiping. He's now worshiping God because of what God has done for him. So we see that because of his great mercy, we have Peter, one saved by his grace, put on display. Because of his great mercy, we are known as those who are chosen by his grace, just as Israel was. And you think about how that all began with Abraham back in the Old Testament. Abraham had done nothing deserving of grace. It was his mercy that was at work to Abraham, and it is his mercy that is at work in us, in Jesus Christ. But he goes on, because of his great mercy, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, who is the you here? Who is he specifically speaking to? Well, ultimately, we know he's speaking to all of us. But, but what here describes them that would apply to us today? Look back at, the, at verse one, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad. And then he names off several areas. Now, what I think is really interesting is I was studying this passage this week. If you'll recall, in Acts chapter 16, there's this really peculiar passage where Paul is going on his second missionary journey, and he's, he's beginning to set out. But, but they, we come to these very interesting verses that say, but the Spirit of Christ was preventing him from going into Asia. And then he was gonna go over here, but the, but, the Spirit, uh, but the Holy Spirit would not allow him to go this way. And you kind of look at that, and it's in this moment that he has this vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over to, to proclaim the gospel to us. And it's from that that we see the founding of churches like the church in Thessalonica, from which we get First and Second Thessalonians, the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, all of these things. So we can see God's sovereign hand, but why not allow Paul to go up here? I mean, wouldn't God want Paul to bring the gospel up there into this, this area that we call Asia? Well, what is so interesting is that every one of the areas that, that Paul was being prevented from going to is listed right here in verse one. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Th that's the very area. And so who is Peter writing to? That very region. And while we don't know the, spe the specifics of, of, of how everything worked out, it's pretty obvious from this letter that was probably written pretty early, probably in the 60s, from, from some scholar's estimate, that, that Peter's writing here while Paul is on missionary journeys to these other areas. And so just step back for a moment and see, man, God was at work through these two men in order to spread the gospel further and further. And it's an amazing thing to step back and see how, how Scripture really fits together. But this description of living as exiles, dispersed, is one that really fits us. Now, when we look back at the Old Testament and we consider how did people end up in exile? Now, exile would be what we would know today as like refugees. A lot of times when somebody is out of their home country, like Noah Green and I had the chance to talk to some of our IMB missionaries that were missionaries in Ukraine that now are in Poland. They are exiles from Ukraine right now because they can't go back to their home country. They can't, they, they want to get back. They plan to go back. But for now, and maybe for, for a long time to come, they're gonna be in another country in Poland. So they're exiled from Ukraine now in another nation. And so that's a way for us contemporary, in a contemporary way to think about exile. When the Old Testament, when the people of God would be exiled from Israel and from Judah, it was often because of sin. And so is that what Peter is putting forward, that because of sin, you're in exile? That doesn't seem to be the flavor of what he says. 
Instead, actually, he, he communicates the very opposite idea. It's, it's that because you are living a faithful life, you're going through difficulty. You're, you're facing all kinds of challenges because you are being faithful to the Lord. So what does he mean then here to say living as an exile? Well, here was the great challenge that faced the people of God over and over again when they did find themselves in that exile moment where they were out from where they belonged. And just to remind you, the scriptures make clear that you and I are now citizens of heaven. Why is that? Because we've experienced new birth. We're gonna talk about that next week in this passage. But we've been born now into a new kingdom, into a new citizenship. So we have an ultimate citizenship now that is in heaven. So in, in those terms, you can begin to think of this exile identity and of this metaphor being explained here. And there's the possibility that it's talking about real exiles, people that have been Jews or Judaizers who are now scattered in different areas. But I think that the analogy really fits for all of us as believers to understand this identity that you and I are not yet home. That the kingdom of God is not yet consummate. We don't look around and see Jesus Christ as Lord of all. There's lots of arenas that you and I can quickly identify and say, Jesus is not Lord over that. Like, you know, in my workplace, trust me, Jesus is not at the helm. You know, we're going in the wrong direction. We're doing all the wrong things, all of those kind of things. So we look and we struggle and we say things are not the way that they're supposed to be right now. But brothers and sisters, those are signs that you and I truly are exiles, we're, we're living in a time where we're, we're awaiting that, that ultimate consummation of the kingdom. And so how then are we to live today? Well, that's the point that Peter's making is that you and I are going to be tempted while we live in exile here and now to look at the culture around us and to begin to adopt its ways. And that's what was happening right here in 1 Peter. The people of God were beginning to make compromises to do things that the world around them was doing. Because that push and that pressure is real. And it's difficult. Right now, we face that all the time, especially as it comes to our sexual ethics. And I'm not just talking about issues of LGBTQ plus community. I'm also talking about compromises that you and I make all the time when we watch entertainment. When we turn on the TV and we watch the latest Netflix series and there's sex scenes and there's all of these things going on in shows and we say, well, it's just a little part of the show or whatever, we are bringing into our lives all the time an influence of what sexual sin is and what it isn't, what's acceptable and what's not. And more and more, we've adopted as the church the ways of the world. Cohabitation, it's not so bad. Premarital sex is, you know, that purity culture stuff. Look, look where that got us. And we begin piece by piece to shed what we would see in Scripture of flee sexual immorality. Let it not be even spoken of among you. These sort of standards that are put forward for the people of God, we just shed and we walk away from wholesale. And often not realizing that it's been our entertainment that has influenced us again and again and again as we have binged a whole series full of all sort of sexual ethics that are right there before us. We, we wouldn't say, I'm watching a sexual ethics series, but it's communicating a sexual ethic, how we understand what is right and wrong sexually. And then, because we're taking in so much entertainment, because it's so accessible, right? I mean, like, I don't know how many streaming services you have, but at my house, there's four. 
There's four that we have access to. That's tens of thousands of, of shows that could be watched in any one point. You say, Chad, you need to cancel some of your subscriptions. You're probably right. I'm not gonna disagree with you there. But the reality is, is I could take in all of this all the while underestimating because it's entertainment, how that's influencing me. And that's Peter's point. As brothers and sisters, you and I are living in exile and every moment of every day, we are making decisions about whether we are going to kind of lean into the culture around us and kind of get absorbed into it to where we just become a lot more like it and we look just like it. And really there's no distinction between us and that. And here we are in the shadows rather than being in the light as he is in the light. Even when that's unpopular, even when somebody says, really? Wow, I didn't know anybody still thought that way and are made fun of and ridiculed just like our brothers and sisters were 2,000 years ago. That's exactly what Peter is communicating to, and he's trying to encourage us, reminding us that even though you're living in exile, in Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Oh, how we need that grace. Oh, how we need that peace in those difficult moments where living for Christ becomes very difficult. But don't miss this, they were doing it together Brothers and sisters, we must do it together. We're not supposed to do it alone. We're not supposed to be by ourselves. This is written to the church, and we must be the church more and more. That's why you need a Bible study group. Can I just encourage you? If the only thing you're doing on a Sunday is coming into this room, you are selling yourself short. This is not just about trying to get numbers into a Bible study group. We'll stop counting if it means you'll start going. The reality is that if you don't have a relationship with other believers, you're just one decision, one, one attack from Satan convincing you, you don't need church from just not showing up and nobody knowing you're not here. And then that can begin a long habit of not being part of a church and not being part of the people of God. You need community. So our Bible study groups are a a vehicle for that community to develop, for there to be relationships where we care for one another, where we encourage one another, where we go through the difficulties that we go through together. Because of his great mercy, Peter, because of his great mercy to the chosen, because of his great mercy, may grace and peace be multiplied to you as you live in exile. And because of his great mercy, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the way that that Peter goes into this. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's reminding us of this central reality that is so central to our faith that we celebrate with these little elements. If you need to get one of these, I know that some of our deacons are in the room, so if you need to get the elements, if you're a believer here today and would like to participate in the Lord's Supper, just lift your hand if you still need these and a deacon will come right to you. These elements, they represent exactly what Peter just said. But what Peter is making clear and what we kind of miss is that he goes right into worship. He's saying that based on the mercy of God, you and I can worship and that is good news. We should be excluded from the ability to worship God. We should be fearful that if we even look toward God, he would just smite us dead because of our sin and our filth that separates us from him. But he is establishing that because of his great mercy, you can worship him and not just as some distant God like a deist, 
but as an intimate God who is your father, as, a, as the God who has revealed that he loves you entirely, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are engaged in your salvation, working powerfully today to save you and working powerfully to be faithful to that promise that will ultimately save you in the day of Christ that Peter's gonna point to. But he's reminding us here that it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. He's reminding us that the gospel is central to our salvation. But if there's anything that we need to remember is that this bread and this cup, they are the ultimate signs of mercy. This is mercy revealed. We were, when we do this, we remember mercy toward us. And if anybody asks you, man, what's salvation about? Before you say what you need to be doing in salvation, Paul, I mean, Peter's gonna go into the doing of the, the ways that you need to live I hope that on our lips, for every one of us, what will be said of salvation first and foremost is it means we've received his great mercy. That's the core of our salvation, is that God has chosen in his grace to be merciful to us. And rather than condemning us for our sin that we deserve, he gave his one and only son, whose blood was shed, whose body was given on a cross in order to pay for our sins. He was then buried and then resurrected. So today, we take of this supper. We are reminded of the words from 1 Corinthians that Paul said, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. And I invite you to peel back that layer over the bread and to take it now. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So take and eat in remembrance of Christ. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper. And I invite you to peel back that layer over the, the juice. And said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So take in remembrance of Christ. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Father, we worship you. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, we thank you for your work in us. And we acknowledge today that it is all by your great mercy that we are saved, that we can identify with your people, the chosen, is only by your great mercy. To experience the movement of your spirit is only a gift of your mercy. To have peace and grace for today, the things that we go through is only by your mercy and to be able to worship you, the living God, as Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a gift of your great mercy. So God, we trust that your word is anchoring us, helping us to recover salvation by reminding us that it's all by your great mercy and that that rightly orients us in this life and the trials that we go through. With your eyes closed and heads bowed, I just wanna ask the question, has there been a first time in your life when you experienced his great mercy? You see, what I've just been speaking about pertains to those who have had that first incredible flood of his mercy where they've been saved.
But if you're here today and you say, well, the the rain falls at my house like it does at my neighbor's. I, I eat food just like my neighbor. And know this, God's word says that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He provides food for the just and the unjust. His mercy has been extended to you, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a very specific, very costly mercy that costs God the gift of his own son to save you from your sin. And if you're here today and you have never experienced that abundant, deep, overwhelming, life-changing mercy of God, then know this, he extends his arms to you today. He invites you in this very moment to come and to be in his family, to know him as father. When I was 16, I prayed a prayer like this, God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that you gave Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And so right now, I am asking you, God, to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me. Thank you for giving the gift of your son. And God, I give you my life. And as best as I know how, I want Jesus to be the king of my life. That was this sinner's prayer. But I want you to know that God hears when any sinner prays and asks him for salvation. If that's you today, then I want to invite you to come. Pastors Corey and Noah and I will be here during this time and invite us all to stand at this time and to respond to this time in worship through song. But if you're here today and what you need to do is to experience the mercy of God, I invite you to come at this moment so that we might pray with you as you trust and follow Jesus. You respond now as God leads.